there's a judge that we face with no Christ and the lawyers bringing a prepaid. Everybody, testing, testing. Are we good? All right, perfect. Um, if you could all sit down, please. <laughs> oh, so I am very excited to be bringing the, the word to you here today. Um, but first, I want us to take some time in prayer. And oftentimes, when we approach the word of God, we do it uh, where we, we let the, the preacher pray. What I want us to do is we're going to take a few seconds of just silence, asking the Lord to prepare our hearts and make us hungry for the word. And then I will uh, pray to, to begin the sermon. Father God, thousands of years ago you spoke through the prophet Isaiah and those words held power only because you inspired them. We ask God that your spirit would be loud in this place today. I pray that we would hear your voice and we would receive it, God. Lord, you delight in your son Jesus. I pray, God, that you would kindle a delight in our hearts for Jesus as well right now. I pray, Lord, that we would feast on your word. And I've been feasting on this passage for the past couple weeks. Ask, God, that you would do that one more time for me today. That you would fill me with your spirit. And that I would preach this passage with joy and with passion that it deserves. You are worthy of our attention and you are worthy of our worship here in this room. We invite you here, and we pray all of these things in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so today we are going to be talking about impossible tasks. Now, back when I was a kid, me and my brothers took on an impossible task. We had a, a neighbor growing up named Marianne. She was an older lady, and she had a vegetable garden in the back of her yard. And we would often help her out with that vegetable garden. Now, she had a plot of land that she didn't really use, and so she said we could use it to dig a hole. And so we enthusiastically grabbed all of the garden tools that we could and began digging a hole. And our anthem throughout the whole digging process was we are going to dig a hole to China. We would chant that, right? And we got it pretty deep. I mean, we got it up to our chests. So we were working pretty hard over a number of weeks on this. But I can tell you guys with certainty that we did not make it to China, okay? At one point, we were, we were digging away and digging away, and then all of a sudden, clink, we hit a rock. And it was a rock that was too big for us to dig around, and we were just like, well, okay, we are done. So it, we took on a task that we couldn't handle. And we do that all the time. I'm sure you've taken on tasks where at the end of the day you said, man, this is too big for me. I can't do this. The church 
themselves also has an, a seemingly impossible task. In Matthew 28, Jesus commanded those who follow him to make followers of Jesus of all people groups in the world. Now, that is a tall task. And oftentimes, we hear about the success stories where whole villages become followers of Jesus or hundreds of people get saved. But that's not the full picture. You see, there is 7 billion people in the world. Right now, there is 2.2 billion Christians. That is a very large number. But that leaves 4.8 billion people who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. And out of that 4.8 billion people, there is 3 billion who are called unreached peoples. Which means they have either never heard of the name of Jesus or have not heard of what he did on the cross to forgive their sins. And out of that 3 billion people, it is made up of 7,000 different people groups. These are communities and ethnic people who have never heard of the hope of Jesus Christ. There are the Hui in China. There are 13 million people. They are a predominantly Muslim people. And right now, there is only 200 Christians. But there has been people there sharing the good news of Jesus to them for over a hundred years. And then there's Japan. Japan is this great nation. There's been Christians there for 450 years. And there is still 124 million people in Japan who have never heard the name of Jesus. And that's just globally. Let's talk about here in Chicago. A lot of you here are the only people in your families who are followers of Jesus. And a lot of you here are the only Christians in your workplace or at your school, in your classroom. This is a major problem. Now I want us to take a step back here because for a lot of you here, this conversation is alarming. To hear about the lack of knowledge of Jesus Christ makes your heart ache. But that can't be all of you here. Some of you here, I'm sure, are thinking to yourself, why does it matter? Maybe you think it's wrong to try and convince people to change their religion or, uh, or take people who are perfectly happy and change the faith that they were born with. And that is a fair concern. And for a lot of you here, too, you get really uncomfortable talking, about, talking to other Christians about Jesus let alone your neighbor who doesn't believe God even exists. So what I want to do here today is I want to answer two questions. The first question is, why does it matter whether or not all peoples become followers of Jesus? And two, if it does matter that all peoples become followers of Jesus... How in the world do we accomplish such an impossible task? And what we're going to find out in our passage today is that the answer to both questions is that Jesus will accomplish the longing of the nations. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 
42. Isaiah 42. That's near the middle of your Bibles. For those of you who are using the the Pew Bibles in front, that is page 602. I won't make you stand up because I always forget to tell you to sit down. So Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 12. The text says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by, my hand, by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and a new thing I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the deserts and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so our passage today is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, which are basically the, the two kingdoms that made up the Jewish people back in the day. And Isaiah ministered during, during the reign of four different kings in Judah. The book of Isaiah is a collection of those prophecies that he made during his time. Now, it is separated into two parts. Our passage today is in the second part. The second part of Isaiah is a a collection of prophecies that he made for the people of Israel hundreds of years after he died. The prophecies to those people were that they would be conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And they would be sent into exile all around the known world as a punishment for their sin. You see, God had warned them over and over and over again, but they still chose to worship other gods, they disobeyed God's commands, and they were actively oppressing the poor and the destitute. As punishment, he set them out into exile. And then he prophesied that hundreds of years after that, he would send a Messiah, a Savior who would be the King of Israel, and restore the people so and gather them from around the world so that they could end up becoming the people they were meant to be. Now, 
directly right before the passage that, that we read, he deals with a specific issue. You see, to the Israelites, hundreds of years after he made this prophecy, when they were reading this, and they were in Bab- Babylonian captivity, where they didn't know the language, with a people they could not trust, without any power or authority, they would have wondered if they were worshiping the right God. Because back in ancient times, a God was only as good as the last battle that they won. And in their minds, the God of Israel had lost very badly to the, to the gods of Babylon. This pa- Isaiah 41, the passage right before we, what we just read, addresses this very specific question. And what it says is that what God says through Isaiah is he reminds the Israelites that he had sent them prophets and prophets and prophets. And after they chose to not listen to him, God himself chose to hand the people over to Babylon so that they would repent of worshiping worthless idols. And so um, what he says, the arguments that he makes, is that these gods are worthless wood and stone. They are voiceless. He is the creator of the universe, and he prophesies and foretells unseeable things because in him is all knowledge. And after telling them, do not look towards these false idols, these false gods, we get to Isaiah 42. The first verse, he says, Behold, see, look at my servant. Now, he says, these gods are not worth looking at. Here is someone better than the gods of Babylon. Look at this person. Now, the question is, who is this servant? Let's read how they describe him in the first four verses. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, and he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, uses the, uses the term God's servant or my servant a number of times. And he uses it primarily for four different figures. One, he refers to himself as God's servant. He refers to a king named Cyrus as God's servant. And he also refers to Israel as a whole as God's servant. And then finally, he refers to the Messiah the coming king, as the servant. With so many different figures who are candidates for this passage being the servant, we need to read very carefully to figure out who it is. So first off, we have Isaiah. Isaiah would be a great candidate because he actually was empowered by the Holy Spirit to prophesy on God's behalf. But you see, the servant here doesn't just declare the justice of God, he brings it forth. So it cannot be Isaiah. And then we have Cyrus. He's probably even a better candidate. 
because Cyrus was the Persian king. He, he, was, he arrived hundreds of years after the Israelites were sent into captivity. And he was the, the king who conquered Babylon and then allowed the Jews to come back home to Jerusalem to rebuild. And what's cool about this is Isaiah prophesied this hundreds of years ahead of time, knew exactly the name of the king, and the Persian Empire at the time was just a small city. So God was clearly doing something with Cyrus. Now, I want you to pay attention to something, though, in verses 2 through 3. Notice how they describe the servant. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The servant here is praised for his gentleness. Now, Cyrus, he was a savior in some way, but he was anything but gentle. He saved the Jews through conquest and violence. So, it must not be him. Then we get to Israel. This is probably one of the best candidates for this passage. Because Israel is actually in Isaiah 41, the chapter right before, called the servant of God. So we've got context there. And he does this all over the book of Isaiah. On top of that, they were made to be the delight of God's heart. And they were given the mission of showing the justice and law of God and how they governed their nation. People who came around Israel were supposed to talk about God and praise him because of the closeness that Israel had with God. But the whole point of Isaiah is that Israel failed miserably in their mission. Instead of revealing the justice of God, they have whored themselves in a spiritual sense, to the gods of Babylon. And they have actively taken advantage and preyed upon the weak. So it cannot be them. Not only that, their mission was to to be a lighthouse. They were to stay put and show the light of God to all the nations around them. But that is not the mission of the servant here. He doesn't stay put. He doesn't wait until others can see how he lives his life. It says that he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will establish justice in the earth. He doesn't wait for people to see it. So that leaves us with the Messiah. The the king, the, the, the king of the Jews who the Israelites were expecting to bring in the kingdom of God that would never end. And what I will argue is that the servant is the Messiah. And that this Messiah is no one else other than Jesus. No other person can fulfill the promises that are in this passage. What we will find is that Jesus will accomplish the longing of the nations. Now let me show you what I mean here. So let's look uh, at, at how... Uh, it describes the servant's relationship to God. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. God has chosen him 
He delights the soul, he delights the soul of God. And God puts his spirit upon him. This is exactly what we see with Jesus. So when Jesus began his ministry, he went and got baptized by John the Baptist. And Matthew 3 says that when he came out of the water, the spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And while, he, while that happened, a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, says over him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes forth and begins his ministry commissioned by the love of the Father and the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. And his mission here is to accomplish justice in the nations. And not only is that his mission, it says he will accomplish it. He does not try an accomplishment. He will accomplish it. But he doesn't come like other kings. And he does not bring justice like other so-called liberators. He doesn't announce himself in the streets. He doesn't insist on his enemies and his haters recognizing him. And he doesn't come at his foes with armies or swords. Let's see what it says. It says, that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice in the street or make it heard in the street. Think about this. Is there any politician who wants to be honored in an election who does not campaign? My goodness, Gilbert Villegas, he campaigned and there was no competition, right? But Jesus is not trying to win a popularity contest. He does not insist on his own way, even though his way is the only way worth insisting upon. He wins the victory and brings justice through his gentleness. There is no way around it. He is a gentle savior. And it goes on to say, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I want to break down these two illustrations because there is good news in these passages. Think about a bruised reed. We're talking about a long piece of grass in an empty lot in the city of Chicago. It is bruised to its core, injured, and bent because someone stepped on it. And it is blowing in the wind. A lot of you may feel like a bruised reed. You have a wounded heart. Your spirit is broken. And you feel like any moment you could snap and blow off in the wind. The good news for you here today is that if you entrust your wounds to Jesus, he will not break you. You may feel like you have been stepped down and, and, and trampled on by other people on their way to bigger and better things. But not with Jesus. On his way to accomplish justice in the nations, you are not a floor man. He sees you. The unhealable, he will heal. Jesus loves broken reeds. And then we have a faintly burning wick. That is the black part in the middle of a candle of wax that burns, right? So we have a picture here 
of a candle where all of the wax is gone. You just have the wick. And it's holding on for dear life and it's about to run out. A lot of you may feel like a faintly burning wick. You are exhausted. You are drained. You have run out. At any moment, you feel like you can, you'll die like a candle. What I can tell you is that Jesus does not blow out faintly burning wicks. Instead, he protects them, like putting your hand around the candle to make sure a faint breeze won't blow it out. Not only will he protect you, he will breathe new life into the fire of your soul so that you can burn beyond your capacity. On God's way to glory, he, uh, he will not blow past you. You are part of the justice that he is bringing. Now, what we see in the next few verses is in verse 4, he says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It says that he does it faithfully and he will not grow faint. He does not grow tired. He faces resistance, but he overcomes. He may be gentle, but he is not weak. And he comes with the power of perseverance. Now, I want to draw our attention here. Notice this. It says three times the word justice. And it says that he brings the law to the coastlands. So this is very clearly important to Isaiah. Why is that? Well, it would have made sense to the Israelites at the time because as they are exiled throughout the world, they are living and breathing injustice, right? And they realize that, that when it comes to, to having, having things made right and having peace, you cannot have those things without justice. But even they would have taken a step back here and said, Okay, Isaiah, what are you talking about here? Because notice, this is not just a justice for Israel. This is a justice for the whole world. He brings it forth in the nations. He establishes it in the earth. My goodness, the coastlands are waiting for his law. Distant islands and shores are longing for him to make things right. What we're seeing here is that the mystery of God that is revealed in his servant Jesus is that in Christ, God stops being a tribal deity. He is no longer just for Israel. He is for the whole world. And then what happens is we see the longing of the nations. And they are not they are, the coastlands, they're not waiting like someone sitting, you know, in, in a waiting room impatiently looking at their clock. No, they are like my in-law's dog, MJ, okay? You let him outside, a few seconds later, he's going to come back, and he wants his treat. He's going to be jumping up at your leg. He's going to be doing tricks, whatever he needs to, because he is waiting. He is longing for that treat. The nations are longing for justice. Now, they may not know what form it looks like or where it's coming from, but they are longing for justice. You don't have to look too far to see that. Think about it. Our politicians, the one we entrust to bring justice, most of them are corrupt. They use the oppressed as pawns in their game. And there is 10 million children 
in sexual slavery throughout the world right now. Almost every period in human history has been tainted and is soaking in the blood of genocide. And on a smaller scale, parents abuse children, families are broken. But at the greatest injustice against you is your own sin. The greatest injustice against me is my own sin. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the, in the, in the garden and disobeyed God, every person has been working against their own peace. We have traded love of God for love of self. Instead of gazing upon the purity of God, we have inverted the soul's gaze in on ourselves. Our selfishness is in direct opposition to our happiness. We cannot justify ourselves. None of us are excused. The earth and our souls cry out injustice. And we need someone to make things right. Now, in steps Jesus, right? He is the justifier. He is the one who makes things right. He is the one we, the coastlands, have been longing for. Because he is the only one, unlike us, who was able to live a perfect life. He did not sin. He lived it in perfect obedience to God. And then he willingly laid down his life on the cross bearing the punishment for our injustice. And then once he had paid the price, he rose from the dead so that he could reign in God's kingdom of justice forever. The reason he did that was so that we, when we put our trust in Jesus, and when we commit our lives to his kingship, we are viewed by God with the same justice and the same righteousness that Jesus has. He traded our injustice for his justice by taking our punishment. That is why it matters whether or not distant peoples know the name of Jesus and serve him as their God. Without it, they have no hope. And with it, they have eternal life. And this is not just a justice in heaven. It says that he establishes it in the earth. That means that Chicago will have justice. Baghdad will have justice. Paris will have justice. Every city in the world. And this is how it works. You see, right now, he is making our hearts right. He is bringing justice to our souls. And then his kingdom of justice continues to grow in the world through those who are already his children. But one day he will come and he will bring perfect justice. He will make all, right, all wrongs right so that his people can dwell in peace. Can I have someone say that is good news? Jesus will accomplish the longing of the nations. Now, at this point, there is a change in the scenery. Looking at verses, verse 5, what happens here is at this point, he's been talking to us about, about the servant, right? He's been telling us about who he is. But now he switches, and instead of talking to us, he's now talking to his servant, to Jesus. 
but it's one of those things where he's talking to him, but it's for us to hear. It's like when a, a speaker, uh, when someone comes up and invites a speaker to come up on the stage, they're going to tell you a few things about them, introduce them to you. But then when they're up there, they're going to thank them for coming. They're going to compliment them, say nice things to them right before they speak. And it's all for you to see. What God says to Jesus right now tells us about who Jesus is. So read with me verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Right here, God announces things about himself. He says, I am the creator of the whole world. Everyone has life and breath because of me. And on this basis... He makes a promise to Jesus, and because of that, a promise to us. In verse 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What we see here is God is saying, I am all-powerful. I created all things, and because of that, I will protect you. I will watch over you during your life on earth. That's exactly what happened. Jesus resisted temptation and ridicule throughout his whole life by being upheld by God, by being protected by God. And because of that, he's able to be presented to the people, the people referring to Israel as a covenant, a promise to the people of Israel. Now, the promise to the people of Israel is that Christ will be a light to the nations. And as a light to the nations... This is good news for Israel because Israel, Israel's mission was to be a light to the nations. We already talked about they failed at that. But where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. And as a Jew himself, he was able to single-handedly accomplish the task that was given to them as their representative and in their place. Jesus is the perfect Israel. And that has ramifications for all of us. Let's read the ending of 6 again and verse 7. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So Jesus accomplishes the longing of the nations by being a light to the nations. He did not die on the cross just for Israel. He died on the cross for every one of us, for the whole world. And on that basis, those who are in spiritual blindness and they are in the dungeon and prison of their sin, they will be set free. Some of you here may not yet be set free. You read that description, and that is you. You are in the dungeon of your own guilt. You are sitting in spiritual darkness because of your own blindness to the truth. And you don't know how to get out. There is no hope for you. What we see here is the good news of Jesus stares you straight in the face and meets you. God wants to set you free. And when that happens, it means that you are being saved from prison. 
And, other, and, and in another part of the Bible, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. And when you do that, the light of Christ enters your heart. And you can say, I am free. I can finally see. My chains are broken. Please, if this is you, do not wait until the end of this sermon. Become, of a, become a child of God right now, because this was made available to you by Jesus. He died on the cross to bear your sins. Now, after announcing Jesus' ability to free captives, God announces that he's going to be do, doing something different. In verses 8 and 9, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and a new thing I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So what happens here is that God, because he's the only true God, and he's the only one worthy of glory, he can change things whenever he chooses to. And he is letting us in on what he's doing. He is bringing a new thing. Instead of just working through Israel, he is doing something entirely different. Now, we see the answer in verses 10 through 12. And as we read it, I want you to pay attention. He's doing a new thing. So what is the new thing that he is doing? Where do we see the new word? What, the, the new, what, where do we see the word new? It says, sing to the Lord... A new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the deserts and its cities lift up their voice. The village of Kedar inhabits, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The new thing that God is doing is a new song. It is a song that will resound through all the earth. It is the song of desert villages, of distant cities, of far-off islands and high mountaintops, all singing for joy because their longing for justice and forgiveness has been accomplished by Jesus. When your desire for God is satisfied, all you can do is sing for joy. This is what it looks like when Jesus accomplishes the longing of the nations. The result of peace and forgiveness and justice is joy. This is the message of eternal and universal happiness. And Jesus will not rest, he will not grow faint until he has made it a reality. Now, how will Jesus accomplish the justice of the nations? What we see is he accomplishes the justice of the nations through those who have already been rescued by him. In fact, you and I who believe in Jesus are necessary for him to accomplish the mission. We see this in Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 14 through 15. This is what it says. Hey, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how do they preach unless they are sent? And then he quotes Isaiah in a later part where he says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We work with Christ in the accomplishment of the longing of the nations. If people do not declare to them the good news of the Messiah who has come to lift them out of darkness when they believe on his name, they will not be set free. And I have to tell you, I do not have beautiful feet. Just ask my wife. She loves everything else, just not my feet. I'm not the only one. A few of you have ugly feet too. I know it. But when we are bearers of the good news of Jesus, we have beautiful feet. Praise God. We work with Christ as his partner when in his mission to accomplish the longing of the nations. But here's the thing to keep in mind. As we are preaching the good news of Jesus, we are not the one who changes hearts. Jesus is the one who, through our words, is drawing hearts to himself. We are only mouthpieces. To the sick, we are the syringe. Jesus is the medicine that brings healing. We are the instrument that the musician Jesus plays to create a melody. And our purpose in life is nothing less than to accomplish the longing of the nations. And no one is exempt from this. We are all called to bear the good news of Jesus. This is not for a select few special people. Does it matter if you are retired? If you are a homemaker, if you are a teacher, or a telemarketer, or a union worker, or a pastor, we are all responsible for, for spreading the fame of Jesus wherever we're at. And for you students, I want you to pay attention, because a lot of you are probably wondering, what should I do with my life? What should my career be? These are common questions. Well, wonder no more, because your calling is made very clear in the scriptures, and it is to tell people about Jesus. And when it comes to your career, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you like doing? Do that thing, but do it for the glory of God, and keep your main purpose in mind. You were created for nothing less than the happiness of all peoples. Bear that. God wants you to be a part of him satisfying the longing of the nations. And that infuses any career with meaning. But, once we've said that, we still have that large, impossible task. We've already concluded that it matters whether or not people are followers of Jesus throughout the world. But how in the world do we accomplish it when so many people's hearts are hard against Jesus? 
The answer is that we do not do the accomplishing. Jesus will accomplish the longing of the nations. He is the one who changes hearts. We still tell our neighbors and our co-workers. We still share with our families and our friends. And many Christians need to go to far-off lands to reach those who are unreached. And we may fail and fail and fail and fail, but eventually Jesus will accomplish the longing of the nations. And he is already doing it. Just look at this room. Look what God has already accomplished. My people, my, descendant, my, my ancestors, the Irish, we used to worship rocks and earth. And we would enslave people left and right. But now my people can say in Gaelic, Moladia. The Spanish speakers in the room can say, Alabado sea el Señor. The Filipinos in the room can sing to the Lord, Papuri sa Dios. And some can say in Korean, Chan Song Hap Seda. And we all can say, Praise God. Jesus, the King, is on the move and he will not be stopped. Praise God. Now, let's get practical, right? How do we do that? How do we become more effective in sharing the good news of Jesus? with those who need him so that they believe on his truth and become followers of him. I have four things for you. The first is that some of us need a change in perspective. You can no longer go throughout your day without wondering about the souls of others. You cannot be in your own world when you have such a momentous mission. And I honestly do not care right now what your political views are when it comes to immigration and the refugee crisis. But I do care about your motivation. Let me show you what I mean. A lot of people's view of immigrants and refugees is based on fear. I, wanna, I want you to change that perspective of fear into a perspective of opportunity. You see, most of the unreached people groups in the world are in Muslim countries. And most of the time, we do not have the resources or the opportunity to reach them. But the nations are coming here. They are your co-workers and your neighbors. There are people already here. And there are more wanting to come. They are at your door. And you cannot look at them as a threat through the eyes of fear. Rather, you need to look at them through the eyes of love as those who Christ has died. I want to give you a real-life example. So, back in my church in Spokane, when I was going to college, we had uh, home groups where we would have meals and we would go through the Bible together, much like uh, the Brooks Real Community Groups. And there was a Muslim woman, a student at Gonzaga, who started attending one of those groups. And as she, as she was going there, 
she became more and more interested in Jesus. The week before her visa expired and she had to go back to Saudi Arabia, she put her faith in Jesus and became a follower of him. And she went back to a country where if they found out about the hope that she now had, she could be executed. And if the people in that group would have viewed, the, viewed her with fear or even suspicion, she may not have had the opportunity to hear about the Savior who loved her and died on the cross for her sins. I beg you, some of us need to change our perspective. And we also need to, to give ourselves to risk. The gospel is risky. The good news of what Jesus did comes with risk. But the kingdom of God is never in retreat. It is always on the offense. And that is how we have to behave. Now, after we've had that change of perspective, we need to work on our preparedness. Because here's the thing. Opportunities to share the the good news of Jesus do not come across all the time. And this is probably where people feel the most insecure. The thing that is going to help you more than almost anything, is to be able to to know how to share the gospel in 30 seconds. To have just a a, a short message of the good news that you can share at any time. Whether you're at the bus stop or someone's about to leave, you can share it, okay? But before we talk about how to do that, we need to talk about what is not the gospel, okay? Because the gospel um, is not telling people that you tell the truth because you are a Christian. You go to church on Sunday because it encourages you. It is not telling people why you believe same-sex marriage is wrong because it says so in the Bible. Those are all really good conversations to have, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins because all of us have sinned. And he rose from the dead so that when we believe on what he did, we can have eternal life. It doesn't matter how you do it, you can share that in a number of different ways. This infuses all of life. So there's a lot of room for creativity. But it must have four components. It must have that we are sinful. And then it must have that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And that he did that to forgive our sins. And that we receive that forgiveness when we trust in him in faith. If you've done that, you may not share good at all. But as long as you've done that, you've shared the gospel. And here's the thing. It's Jesus who accomplishes the work. You don't have to be eloquent. You just got to do it. And once you've had that preparedness, we need to develop a dedication to prayerfulness and praise. Because here's the thing. We do not accomplish the changing of hearts. We've already concluded that. Jesus does that. So we need to give ourselves over to prayer. Prayer is the power that energizes our good news sharing. And then also commit yourself to time in worship outside of the church service. Because what worship does is it develops in our heart a desire for the glory of God. And that desire for the glory of God, more than anything else, 
will be what overcomes that awkwardness when it comes to telling someone about Jesus. Because you are more concerned with the glory of God than your own glory. Lastly, we need to work on our intentionality. You need to live your life intentionally. God is sovereign, and he is working all of history to create gospel opportunities. Gospel tunities, as Pastor Eric talked about a couple weeks ago. He is opening up doors for people where you can talk to them about Jesus. And these are divinely appointed. And being intentional, sometimes that you may need to change your routine when your routine does not put you in the path of people who are not followers of Jesus. I'll give you an example. At work, I really love car naps. Car naps are the best. And when I'm on lunch, I do not want to talk to my coworkers. But I was convicted because I was using my time selfishly, right? Uh, I, I was not taking advantage. That was that when I'm at work, there's not a lot of opportunities to talk to people about Jesus. So what I did was I chose intentionally to take my lunch in the lunchroom. After I eat lunch, I may go down and take a nap in my car. But when I eat my lunch, I will eat it in the lunchroom. Right? Yeah. It's a small thing. Here's the thing. I wasn't even trying to start conversations. But by putting myself in a space where other people were, I've had several conversations with people about Jesus. And I've prayed with a number of people because of that time. It is merely the willingness to be intentional with your time and your space that will open up opportunities for the gospel. So, in conclusion, as we stand in awe of a God who accomplishes the longing of the nations, let us change our perspective when it needs to be changed. Let's give ourselves to prayerfulness and worship. Let's prepare ourselves adequately. And let's be intentional so that we do not waste the time that God has given us. And as our prayer team comes up, I want to invite you to come up and, and pray for the Lord to open up those opportunities. We've talked a lot about how you can do this in Chicago. But for some of you, this this word from the Lord may have kindled or fanned into flame a desire in your heart to go to those places where no one has ever heard the name of Jesus. If that is you, I would, I would particularly tell you to come up and be prayed for. I would love to pray for you as well. And as we go throughout our day, let us ask God to fill us with the Spirit and to show us those opportunities. Pray with me. Father, you are good and you are merciful. You bring justice to an unjust world. Jesus, thank you that you are a gentle Savior who doesn't trample on us. And thank you that you are preparing a way for peace in this world. Lord, I ask that those around us who do not trust in you, I ask that you would give us open doors. Lord, I pray for those 4.8 billion people that have not put their faith in you, 
that you would, you would revive our world, that you would send people out. And I pray, God, that we would not forget our mission, which is your mission to accomplish the longing of the nations. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, in your precious name, amen. Say